morning we're going to be continuing our Created for Significance series and talking about your worth in God's eyes. Last week we went through the first part of Luke 15. We talked about a shepherd losing a sheep. We talked about a woman losing a coin. And now we're going to be going into something that is called the prodigal son. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 starting in verse 11. If you want to flip over there in your Bibles, we're going to be going through this verse by verse as we go um, into the Word of God. And the word prodigal is not something, or it's not a word that is used very much in our, um, in our world today. As a matter of fact, growing up, I had no idea what prodigal meant. And growing up, probably the biggest influence or positive influence on my life was my grandfather. He was a good Lutheran man, had a great reputation around Hayward, and I spent my summers with him and he would teach me what it was to be about being a good man. You know, being true to your word, uh, work ethic, honor, all these kind of lessons that he instilled with me into me. As I entered into my teenage years, I stopped going up to Hayward so much, so I stopped losing that influence in my life, and I started to head down the wrong path. And when I was about 16 years old, my grandfather and grandmother came down to Kenosha, to visit, and they absolutely hated coming to the city. Their idea of going to the city was Rice Lake. So they, they, coming down to a 120,000 person city is not, was not anything they liked doing, and, but they came down because they wanted to see me, they hadn't seen me in a long time, and they came down and they saw that I had gotten my left ear pierced. Now in the 80s, that was the big rebellious thing to do. Now it's tattoos, now it's, it's, it's various things like that. But in the 80s, the big thing was grow, grow a mullet or grow your hair long, which I did. And then I had my left ear pierced. So uh, that was my way of, of showing self-expression, I guess, in the 1980s. And my grandfather came down and he saw that and he just shook his head. He goes, you're just going to end up being my little prodigal, aren't you? And I'm like, what the heck is a prodigal? So I went back into my room and I took out my dictionary and I looked it up. I was like, I don't know what prodigal means so, and I don't want to look stupid. So I looked it up. And Webster actually pointed back to Luke chapter 15. Remember when we used to be able to talk about the Bible? <laughs> and they actually pointed right back to Luke 15 and said that the word prodigal means rebellious, wasteful, or extravagant. So that kind of puts into perspective exactly what we're going to be talking about today is a son uh, in the Bible that was rebellious, wasteful, and extravagant. So in Luke 15, we have that story unfolding. And many of us who have been around the church for a while have heard it a few times. As a matter of fact, last time we had a community service that I spoke at, I believe I spoke on the prodigal son. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. But we're going to be looking at it in a little bit different of an of a angle that we're going to take on it. First, let's open in prayer. Father God, we thank you. And we thank you, Father, that you can bring us new truth through a story that we, we may have heard dozens of times. So, Father, I ask, Lord, that you open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears, and open our spirits so that we can hear what the Spirit would say to us today. Help us to see your extravagant love in the life of this man who went the wrong direction. Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. So, the story of a son who was reckless, rebellious, and wasteful. 
This son goes to his father, convinces him to give him his inheritance early, and then squanders it on fast living before coming home. And every time I've heard of this story preached on or taught, the focus has always been on the son and what the son did. And most of the times I've spoken on it, my focus has been on the son. But as I was reading this, as I was preparing to, to bring this to you today, I really looked at it, and, and one of the things you do for sermon preparation is you take the scripture, you write it out, and then you outline it. And what I found was this story is actually more about the father than it is the son. Notice how it begins in, in chapter 11 of Luke 15. It says that there is a man who had two sons. So who is the object of that sentence? The man. He, he's the subject of the sentence. The object are, is the son. And this is important because this story answers the question, how does God feel about you? And when I bring that up, some of us have this idea of God, that he's in heaven right now, and our name comes up, and he just kind of goes, <sighs> anybody have that opinion of God sometimes? That's just how he looks at you? Oh, there he goes again. There she, there she goes. and You just don't know what they're going to do next. There's a reason that this story is the capstone of Luke chapter 15. In the first two stories, we focused on a lost sheep and a lost coin and the joy that the people who, who lost these things had when, when they were found. So for the next few minutes, we're going to immerse ourselves a little bit in first century Jewish culture so we can understand exactly what Jesus wants us to see in this story. Because it's, you have to bring this culture into it to understand exactly what's going on. And the story of the prodigal's father is a story that's told in five different scenes and in scene one the younger son asked his father to divide his property between the sons so the younger can have his inheritance right now and the father amazingly grants this request and at first glance you have to think was this father just dumb i mean what father would give a young boy all of this money and, and essentially, in, in what they're saying here is the son went to his father and said, I wish you were dead, so just give me the money that's coming to me when you die. And when you look at, at you know, there's a book on my shelf that's the life and times of Bible people, and what it does is it brings the culture into the scripture so you can understand what is being written a little bit better. And when you read this, you understand that no one in the Middle East would ever say this to their father. Because again, they're expressing a death wish to their father. And this would be so disgraceful that at the very least it would have earned his son, no matter how old he was, a severe beating. You want to talk about being brought out to the woodshed? We are, being, we are talking this son would have been beaten within an inch of his life. One Middle Eastern writer Ibrahim Said writes, A shepherd in search for the sheep and a woman in search for the coin do not do anything out of the ordinary beyond what anyone in their place would do. But the action that the father takes in the third story, the story of the prodigal son, are unique. They're marvelous and divine actions which would not have been done by any Middle Eastern father. 
The next words of the story go like this. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth on wild living. Now, I've always had it in my mind when I was reading this scripture that the son got what he wanted and left the next day. That's kind of, he, he kind of just ran away from home as soon as what he got. But then it occurred to me that it isn't like his father could pull out a checkbook and write it out in first century Israel. Wealth was measured by animals. Wealth was measured by possessions, by the number of servants that you had and land that you owned. So this isn't something that, that could happen very quickly. Why? Because he had to liquidate everything. He had to sell off everything his father has worked so hard for. So basically, he's going door to door in his village saying, Hey, you want to buy some sheep? Hey, you want to buy some camels? Hey, you want to buy some of this land that my father left me? So not only does, is what's going on happening within this family, it's happening within this entire village. This entire village is now involved in the foolishness of his son. As Jesus is telling his story, his listeners had to be imagining this brash young man, again, going from door to door, trying to convince people who knew his father to buy all these pieces of the family property. They knew that the boy had insulted his father, had shamed him and wished him dead. And now he's doing the unthinkable, selling off everything he's worked for for generations. I would imagine that as he knocked on these doors, there was some scorn coming back at him. There were people yelling at him. There were people saying that he should just be put to death for what he was doing. So the pressure to get out of town had to be growing and growing and growing. So as soon as he, he, as soon as he sells the last of what he can sell, he heads to the faraway country. And that's where scene two takes place. And in a faraway country, thinking he's going to be free, thinking he's going to be rich, thinking he's going to be popular with all this money, the wayward son gradually descends into his own personal hell. The text summarizes what may have been years of wasted life, saying that he squandered his wealth in wild living. He wasted it. He threw parties. He, he, he may have, have just thrown money away. He may have thrown a, a party and walked out with $100 bills and thrown them in the air, something like that. He just absolutely squandered his wealth. And the citizens of this faraway country, they knew it. And they're not very impressed with this, man, this frivolous young man either. But now he's out of money. Now he's poor. Now he has nothing left. And in the culture that he lived in, the polite way a Middle Easterner gets rid of an unwanted person isn't just to say, hey, maybe you should go home or maybe you should leave this area. You know, when he's saying, you know, can you give me some money or, or can you hire me? Can you, you know, have me do a job? Yeah, yeah, sure. I know how to get rid of this guy. Hey, go feed my pigs. Knowing he's a Jewish man. Knowing no Jewish man will go anywhere near pigs. It's a job that no self-respecting Jewish boy could or should accept. They're unclean animals, according to the law of Moses. Not only that, but they had to be fed seven days a week. 
So it means you can't even keep the Sabbath. It's a terrible job. And it doesn't even pay well enough to feed him. The sun finally hits rock bottom. Anyone ever hit rock bottom in their life? You get there when you're so deep in your mistakes and you look up from the hole that you've dug yourself into and you can barely see any light at all. Maybe you can't see any light. That's where this, this boy is right now. And then this hole of self-pity. He begins to look at himself and see himself through honest eyes. He knows there's no life for him in this foreign land. He'll, he'll die of starvation amongst the pigs. Yet he feels he can't go home to his father because he's such a failure. He has nothing left to offer his father. His father is, has gotten to the age now where the son is supposed to provide for the father, not live off them. So he comes up with a plan. He realizes he can't go back as a son and ask to live in the family house. But maybe he could go home and ask to be a hired servant. At least he could eat. That way, if he works hard and saves as much as he can, maybe someday he'll be able to earn enough to be some use to his father. And the plan has some merit. It shows that, that God is working on his heart. But what he doesn't take into consideration immediately is he's also going to have to face the scorn and wrath of the villagers that he also betrayed. And that's his real problem. After all, these people, they hated him. He had disgraced them all by wishing his father was dead and then disposing and, and selling off for cheap his father's property. He wasted everything his father had spent his whole life working for and is now coming home in rags. Yet he doesn't have a choice. And he sets off for home. And that leads us into scene three, the return of the younger son. And this is where the father comes into the story in full force. The father, because of his experience, because of his longevity, because of his spirituality, knows two things. First, he knows that his son, given the maturity level and character that he left with, was bound to fail. He knows he's not coming back as a successful businessman. If he comes back at all, it's going to be as a beggar. The second thing the father knows is that the village will not treat him well. Since his departure, probably every single town person has told him openly and repeatedly, you should not have done that. Why were you so foolish to grant him all of that inheritance in the first place? They probably reminded him of the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 18 that said that a disrespectful and rebellious son should be brought before the elders of the town and they would have sentenced him to death by stoning. That's in the Bible. It's amazing any of us got out of adolescence, isn't it? The father knows this. And what he does in scene three is to counteract all of this is nothing short of amazing. In scene three, the father does five things that would have been considered outrageous, disgraceful, and even dishonorable in Middle Eastern society. And they're all designed to protect and restore the son that he loved so much. Even though this son had turned away from him, rejected him and wished him to be dead. The first thing the father does is that 
the Bible says that he runs. When word comes to him that his son had been seen on the outskirts of the village, the father runs to him. And you're saying, well, why is that so significant? Because instead of letting his son run the gauntlet of judgment, because this would not have been a private thing, the entire village would have stepped outside, picked up rocks, picked up sticks, picked up stones to, to treat this son to what he deserved when he got home. So instead of letting the son run the gauntlet of judgment, he was surely going to get, the father runs the gauntlet for him. And you have to remember that this, this father is be, uh, portrayed as probably one of the richest men. Probably something like in, in English society would be like a nobleman or a, an earl or a baron or a duke. Somebody who has very strict behavioral rules. And when you get into that kind of position, you never run. I mean, imagine seeing the President of the United States sprinting toward you know, Air Force One and a whole bunch of people with guns surrounding them and everything, you're going to think that something is really wrong. So they have, they never, ever run in his, in his uh, um, culture. And this father breaks all these rules. Then he lifts his robe, exposing his ankles. That was considered very shameful in his culture. He runs down the road, through the village, in front of the villagers. He just humiliates himself. And Jesus explains why. He says in verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. This whole parable, this whole story, is describing how God the Father feels about his children. Even when we mess up, even when we spit in his face, even when, when we, we go off on our own foolish ways, when we come back, He will have compassion on us. Even and mostly when we've done nothing to deserve it. Let's consider the son's perspective for a moment. He knows his father lives in the middle of town. He knows the town hates him. He knows there's no way to get to his father without enduring the scorn of the village. Possible judgment, possible death but he knows he has to get to the Father. So he mentally prepares for the work, worst and walks the last few miles toward the town. And sure enough, at that first sighting on the outskirts of the village, word starts spreading. People are starting to gather. He's about to endure the worst moments of his life. And as he comes to the edge of the village, he expects to see people picking up rocks, sticks, rotten tomatoes, whatever they can get their hands on, to, to give him what he really deserves. And then he looks up, and all he sees is the ankles of his father running toward him. And to his other amazement, rather than experiencing all this ruthless hostility he deserves for what he's done, he sees a visible demonstration of the love of his father. It's hard to, to understand this in 21st century America, what the significance of what the Father is doing here in 1st century Israel. You can only really imagine it with your minds and feel it with the Holy Spirit. By the way, this is why Jesus spoke in parables. He didn't get a chalkboard out and say, 
God is good, God is great, God is all this kind of stuff. He showed it through the speaking of parable because something can't be taught just didactically in, in a list. It has to be demonstrated through narrative. Which is, by the way, why your testimony is so powerful. People can't tell you your experience didn't happen to you. You can tell them God is good and they'll argue that all day. You can tell them God is creator. They'll argue that all day. You tell him I was once blind and now I can see. They can't argue with that. The second thing the father does, it says that he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. Just close your eyes and imagine that for a moment. They're embracing eye to eye shoulder to shoulder. In his mind, the son had, had pictured himself coming home and abasing himself, throwing himself face first at his father's feet and begging to become a servant in his household. He's thinking first, you know, I might kiss my father's feet and then maybe I'll kiss my father's signet ring. But the father won't even let him get down there. He puts his arms around him. He holds him up. And kisses him on both cheeks. And not just kisses him perfunctorily on both cheeks. The, the Greek word for that is cataphylo. It means literally to kiss again and again and again. That he just can't stop showing love. Picture yourself in this scene. We've all wronged God. And we know it. We think we're going to have to go and grovel. We think we're going to have to go and, 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 and humiliate ourselves. And repentance does have some, some, some amount of doing that. So we run, we approach him, we, we have a whole speech plan, just like this son. Only he doesn't even let you begin. The minute you approach him, he embraces you. That's a powerful picture. The son had a speech already. He probably rehearsed it all the way home. He said, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of our hired men. You see his plan? He's going to admit his guilt. He's become a servant in his father's household. But then look what he actually says. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. He doesn't even ask what he was originally going to ask. Why? Because he's so overwhelmed by the Father's love. See, the son's plan was to earn his way back. Earn the Father's forgiveness and, and maybe someday I'll get his favor. But then the Father runs and kisses him. How could he not accept that kind of love for him? The third thing the Father does is call for a robe to be put on his son. Here are his exact words. But the Father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Now, who do you think owned the best robe in the family? The father. The father and son are still standing at the end of the village. Villagers are, are, are lined up, ready to execute judgment. 
And the father wants the whole village to know that he has now accepted his son back into his home. So he sends his servants to get his own best robe so his son can wear it as he walks through the village. It's amazing. And the fourth thing the father does is call for a ring. He says, put the ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. What ring is he talking about? Is he talking about like a wedding ring or a jewelry ring? No, he was talking about the signet ring. It was a ring only senior members of a family could carry. It had a decoration on it that when they would seal a legal document, they would press it in there to signify this came from this family and he has the entire authority to do um, things for this family. It says that this son is now entrusted, empowered, and back to being a member of this family. You say, well, what's significant about the footwear? The sandals are a sign that he is a free man and not a servant. In the Old Testament, servants didn't get shoes. They walked around barefoot. It was one of the way people knew they were slaves. And finally, the father says, bring the fatted calf and kill it. You notice he didn't ask for a fatted goat. He didn't ask for a fatted sheep. He didn't ask for a chicken. He asked for the fatted calf. Why a calf? Because a father was getting ready to throw a party. He needed a lot of meat. And only a calf would have enough meat to invite every single person in the village to this party so they could all see this son who was blind can now see. He was lost but now has been found. He was totally rebellious, but now has been restored to relationship within that family, and especially to that father. When Jesus was telling this story, no one could have anticipated where he was going to it. The story of the prodigal is an ultimate rags to unbelievable riches story. Only the riches aren't about money. They're about measuring your worth in God's eyes. Do you see what Jesus is doing with this story? He's communicating with every person who has wanted to take a step back toward God. He's showing just how significant we are to him and how he feels about us. You see, God just doesn't slightly turn his head when a sinner repents. He runs to us. He doesn't let us bear the shame of living our lives as we wished, as if he were dead. He bears the shame for us. He kisses us. He puts his robe upon us. He puts a signet ring upon our finger, sandals on our fleet that we're no longer slaves to sin. And he kills the fatted calf to celebrate us returning to the fold and invites everyone to celebrate with us, with him. Verse 7 of chapter 15, Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. That's the kind of God we serve. I'm going to close by briefly touching on the last scene of this story. Remember, Jesus is speaking not only to sinners who needed to, to hear that God loves them 
after hearing for years from the Pharisees that if they, if they stumble in this little thing in the law, these 613 laws, any little stu- stumble in it that they're sinners and, they, and God was angry with them and, and you better repent or he's going to smite you. That's what they've been hearing for years. But he's not really talking to them. In the last part of the story, he's talking to the Pharisees who had just criticized him for being around sinners. Jesus is going to show the Pharisees where they are in this story. Scene four is about the older son. The older son stayed faithful to a point. I mean, he hadn't left home. But if you read the story very carefully, you'll discover that he too left the heart of his father. As the scene opens, where's the older son? He's out working in the field. Several years have gone past. The father is probably retired, so the son now owns everything. It all belongs to him. And as the older son is coming in from the fields, he hears music. And he gets a report from one of the servants that his brother has returned home safely, and there's a party going on. What was the older brother's response? Anger. Hostility. He refuses to join the party. In Middle Eastern culture, that would have been just as bad of an insult to the father than what the younger son had done. Humiliating him in front of the whole village. Because the older son's role at the party was to welcome the guest and basically be like the master of ceremonies who would, who would plan it and run that party. Without, with him not at the party, everyone knows that this son has now rejected the father. And this is where you see that in his heart, the older son has distanced himself as much from the father as the younger son did years ago. And you see it by what he says to his father in, in verse 29. It says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. But you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. And these two statements tip us off to the older son's distance from his father. First of all, does he think of himself as a son? No, he thinks of himself as a servant to the father. He hasn't lived with the father like a son but seen himself only as a servant, trying to earn his way into the father's favor. So the father says, My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. I already gave it to you. All these years, it's been yours. Yet despite that, the older son has distanced himself. He refuses to see the goodness of his father and share in the mercy shown the younger son. These were the Pharisees. And their attitude might reflect some in the church who can't accept people back who have drifted away from God and might want to come back. So I bring this up to say, don't be the older son. Have the heart of the father. The point of this story is that the Father loves all of His children so much that He's willing to suffer and be humiliated in order to bring us home. 
And you say, well, John, how do you know that? How do you know that, that God is willing to be humiliated for you and I? For God so loved the world, he gave us his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world could be saved through him. If God loves like that, who are we to deny that love to those who are seeking God even after living apart from him for years.